This morning's exhortation ties into the hymn that we had just sung for our opening hymn. And the title of the exhortation is, Father, If It Be Possible. And we have a scriptural reading, which is in Matthew chapter 26. So if we'll open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26... We're going to read verses 36 to 46. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Well, we all surely remember the agonized request of his Father made by our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his betrayal. He must for years have anticipated the excruciating suffering that awaited him before the dusk of another night. Though he knew the purpose the Father had to be accomplished in him, Jesus was, after all, a man with the understandable human desire such as we would have to avoid intense pain. Nobody likes to suffer and die. His impassioned request, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This plaintive request was not granted, despite the Father's intense love for his totally faithful Son. We must understand that in view of the infinite wisdom of God and his great mercy attested by Scripture, there had to be an unassailable reason as to why it was not possible for that request to be granted. What then could be that unassailable reason as to why it was not possible to grant our Lord's urgent wish? That it is perfectly re- that is a perfectly reasonable question. To answer it merely by saying that it was not the Father's will to grant the request would be a sufficient explanation. However, that would leave most people further mystified about God's ways, which Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, are past finding out. Nevertheless, God has graciously permitted those of us with a reverent fear and love for Him to learn to accept as just and in simple faith as much of His ways as He chooses to reveal. 
But had not the Son always obeyed the Father's will perfectly, and had he not almost completed the work given him to do, the Father's great work on behalf of his human creation included one more act of unquestioning obedience necessary for the fulfillment of his purpose. However much the Son's humanity caused him to wish passionately to be freed from it. God undoubtedly had no desire to be unkind or unsympathetic toward his son's agony. None of us like to see our children suffer, do we? The son's necessary suffering was extremely painful to the father as well as to the son. God's wrath felt toward the vile perpetrators of the son's cruel death was made manifest by such violent physical disturbances accompanying the suffering of Jesus on the cross that even a hardened Roman centurion would exclaim in Matthew chapter 27 verse 54, Truly, this was the Son of God. We have already stated that God's full purpose with the human race would not have been accomplished without this manner of his Son's death. An apostolically stated reason was the provision of a righteous means whereby sin in human flesh could be publicly condemned and the Father's righteousness declared in so doing. We have a couple of scriptures to look at in regards to this. Romans chapter 3. Turn to that. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 26. It says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or an atonement through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Turn over to that. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. This is speaking of Jesus. In fact, we'll read verse 25 too. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, another purpose was that many of God's sons might be brought to glory. And we read that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. So we see that there was another purpose for that by reconciling to himself through the death of, of Jesus Christ these other sons. And that's spelled out also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. We won't turn to that. It was necessary also that the promises made to the fathers be confirmed. And those promises, if we look at Romans chapter 15, verse 8, Now now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the Father. So Jesus 
death was to confirm the promises made unto the fathers by a perfect sacrificial offering, which we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. We don't need to turn to that. Furthermore, the law of Moses, with its merely typical sacrifices of the blood of animals, had to be taken out of the way. And we read this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. So turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So, as I said, the law of Moses with its merely typical sacrifices of the blood of animals had to be taken out of the way, and a truly effective means for man's justification be substituted for them. Furthermore, in the mercy of God, the sons to be brought to glory would would have need of a merciful high priest, one that has with immortality and the standing with the Father required for his being a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure, as Zach might say, or succor them that are tempted. Finally, as has been stated, there was the need for a public condemnation of sin in human flesh in one totally free from any transgression. And we'll say more about this a little bit later. In making possible all of these momentous consequences, God deemed that this final act of obedience by our Lord Jesus was necessary, thus making impossible the granting of the Son's request in the garden. This final act of submission was but, was but the termination of the life of complete sacrifice of the kind most pleasing to God. This sacrifice was foretold in the 40th Psalm, and Paul quoting from it, quotes from it in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 6 to 10, and I want to read from the Revised Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 6 to 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 6 to 10. In burnt offerings, back up to 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. 
In other words, he takes away the first, which is the animal sacrifices, plus the offerings, that he may establish the second, which is the doing of God's will. And by that will, talking about God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Well, it's interesting to contrast these scriptural teachings with the explanation for God's own appointed and righteous way for for condemning sin and for reconciling men to himself as put forth by theologians in the world's churches. Church-sponsored radio and TV programs on Sunday morning can enlighten us clearly on this subject. And the same subject was uh, told us when we uh, visited our uh, our apple farmer up in uh, Wisconsin. Their theory explains in a childishly simple and disgusting way God's magnanimous atoning work. It has been claimed by such ministers of the gospel that God was so angry about sin that he heaped all the sins of mankind upon his only and beloved son and thus vented his wrath by causing him to suffer such a horrible death. God is not vindictive, even though he meets out righteous and justifiable punishment upon the wicked, but not upon a perfectly righteous man. In this way, theologians claim Jesus bore God's wrath anyway, because God so loves us all. Upon this theory, Jesus died as a substitute for us. This is what uh, what our farmer friend up in Wisconsin said to us, that that Jesus was a substitute, took our sins on his body as a substitute for us. Had he died as a substitute, he should not have been raised, but he was. Furthermore, we then should not have to die, but we do. A little common sense should tell us that such an explanation is both unscriptural and is an insult to our all-wise and merciful Heavenly Father. He was always well pleased with his son, who had never earned the wages of sin. Nevertheless, he was subject to death through no fault of his own. Though Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, the significance of his sacrifice needs to be explained in harmony with the rest of Scripture, not by a humanly devised scenario such as is commonly believed that he was a substitute. Sin is still alive and thriving. It still has yet a thousand more years to exist before finally being abolished. According to the popular doctrine, since Jesus has atoned for the sins of us, the sins of all of us, we should no longer have to be warned and to struggle against it. Well, this philosophy Paul denied emphatically in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We do, of course, recognize that there are certain passages of Scripture that upon superficial consideration can be ignorantly or willfully misinterpreted to lend apparent support to such a theory. Examples, such examples are John 3.16, which we see all the time posted around, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, Hebrews chapter 9 verses 25 to 26, 
and Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It's easy for us to see how the words from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, seem to fall in line with their attempt to explain in very simple terms how God's grace on our behalf appears to fit their explanation. Were it not that the overall teaching of Scripture gives us abundant reason to see the fallacy in that overly simple explanation for the wondrous ways in which God works, we might have difficulty in reflecting their interpretation of those words of Peter. First of all, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Let's turn to that. Again, Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 to 26. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or an atonement through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So we see here that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26, that it was to declare God's own righteousness, that He might be just or righteous, that God permitted His Son's blood to be shed upon the tree. Using purely human judgment, one might think that deliberately causing a perfectly sinless man to suffer such a death would declare on God's part the very opposite of righteousness. Death is clearly stated, Romans 6.23, to be the wages of sin, not of personal righteousness, certainly not of that order of righteousness that Jesus wrought in obedience to the Father's will. Peter told the Jews on that famous day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Jesus had understood clearly and throughout His ministry what was to happen to Him, as He had told His disciples on several occasions. And He said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Christ knew how He was going to die. He knew, He told His, his disciples that He was going to be crucified. He knew that he, had to, that he had been sent by the Father into the world, as expressed in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He knew this. But why should a man totally free from any kind of transgression then be required to taste taste of death? Some seek to explain his sacrifice, even some Christadelphians, as a purely altruistic act on Jesus' part. There is here no attempt to downplay the altruism of Jesus. For Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But altruism alone does not explain how the death of a sinless man would accomplish the condemnation of sin. Countless sinless infants have died without their deaths having any effect 
toward the condemnation of sin in human flesh. There is a more fundamental reason that must be sought. In most cases, in referring to himself, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man rather than the Son of God. This is basic to the explanation for his death and indicates that Jesus clearly understood why death awaited him at the end of his ministry in spite of his being God's Son. In Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus, his true genealogy, we find in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, where it says, Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. We are all descendants of Adam. Therefore Jesus was likewise the son of Adam, and Adam equals man, throughout his mother. This heritage brings with it both death and the propensity to sin. The death of a man who had overcome this propensity within himself to commit sin was necessary to constitute Jesus the needed perfect sacrifice to put away sin. But sin has to date been put away only in the body of Jesus. In the rest of all of us, it is alive and doing all too well. Sin could be overcome only where it dwells, that is, for example, in human bodies. In the bodies of all, except Jesus, it has never been completely overcome. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, many, and that's talking about all humans, many were made sinners. In other words, they were constituted sinners. So by the obedience of one, talking about Jesus, shall many, only the obedient, be made constituted or righteous. We are by nature constituted sinners in God's sight, quite apart from any transgressions of our own. Not only babies, but even unborn ones may die without having had any chance to transgress. However, through the mercy that God bestows on the basis of His, of his own Son, perfect sacrifice, those who come to God through identifying with Jesus, both in baptism and by an obedient life, shall be constituted righteous in God's sight. At present, our constitution as righteous is only provisional. Depending upon our walk after the judgment, righteousness will be permanent for the faithful. This matter of personal identification was referred to by Jesus in his interview with Nicodemus. He said in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, this is a beautiful type. A beautiful type. The fiery in the, in, in the, the fiery serpent, and under the Hebrew it's, the, it's called seraph, and it was probably orange-red resembling fire, serpents had bitten the people, causing many to die. God commanded Moses to make an image of bronze of what had been giving the people deadly bites and to put it upon a pole, that is, to lift it up, to be looked upon. The same type of thing as when Jesus was lifted up when he was placed on that stake. Those 
Those who had been bitten, but who obeyed God's order for them to look upon that image, were healed of the deadly bite that they had received from the real serpents. Thus we have the beautiful antitype in God's invitation to us, that we might look upon Jesus, once lifted up upon a pole, who was of that image of what is killing us, and that is namely a human body, the dwelling place of sin, even in a man free from any transgression. So we were bitten by sin in the manner of our descendant from Adam. But death that comes of this serpent bite can in the future be healed by looking upon Jesus, by identifying with him in baptism as the result of a resurrection to life again, and being approved by our Lord at his judgment seat. Without this lifting up, of which Jesus spoke on several occasions, and without our looking in faith unto him, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, without recognition of what is killing us, we shall miss the real meaning of his sacrifice, and we shall through that failure retain permanently the effects of our heritage from the first Adam. In other words, we would die in our sins. This is God's way of reconciling us to himself, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This then explains why, in the purpose and the wisdom of God, it was not possible for the request in the garden for the cup of suffering to pass from Jesus. The suffering on the cross, though almost unbelievable, intense, lasted only several hours to be followed by the rest of a death for three days and nights. Then the glorious resurrection, followed by the change the spirit nature constituted Jesus, the second Adam, the beginning of the immortal creation of God, the new creation that's being talked about in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus thus became the first fruits of them that slept that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus ordered his disciples and us if we be indeed his modern disciples, not to lose sight of the price that he and the Father paid that we might have hope of everlasting life. He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, This cup is the new covenant, or the testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Here is reference to the manner of his death, to altruism, to the means by which the everlasting covenant needed to be confirmed, and to the way of salvation to be opened for us Gentiles that we read about in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 9. So turn to Romans 15, verses 8 to 9, where we read, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. I read that. Thus there is a scripturally demonstrable reason 
as contrasted with human speculation as to why it was not possible in the wisdom and mercy of God for Jesus to be released from the death on the cross. After his resurrection, Jesus cleared away the mist of confusion, first for two of his disciples to whom he appeared on their journey towards Emmaus that we read about in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 26, where he said to them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The glory into which Jesus had then entered was the Father's reward for his obedience and for the suffering he had received undergone. And with that glory came the joy in the assurance of that he had endured the cross, despising the shame, as we read in Hebrews. A part of that joy was later described by him in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Well, in conclusion, Jesus' holding of those keys is our assurance of future joy. If we but put our full trust in God and keep it to the end as Jesus did, it is written in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Here is hope for those in our increasingly desperate world, a world in which people are <coughs> a world in which people are committing their mortal and only lives to flimsy craft upon shark-infested seas in the vain hope that they might reach the doubtful safety of our shores. By contrast, we risk no such calamity, but have an infinitely greater hope than theirs a hope far surpassing an eternal joy if we can but put forth the effort to commit our way unto the Lord, to trust firmly in the promises of a faithful Heavenly Father as His faithful Son put put His trust in Him. So we need to think about those words. Father, if it be possible. And this exhortation was an exhortation by Brother John Peake.